Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Mariana Bulanussi, uh, who is Senior Assistant Professor of Modern Languages, Literatures and Cultures at the University of Bologna. Uh, her research focuses on lexical semantics and multimodal communication, and in particular on the relation between language and thought, and on the semantic representation of word meaning in mind. Welcome, Mariana. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with your 2018 paper, um, Abstract Concepts, Structure, Processing and Modeling. Uh, you say our ability to deal with abstract concepts is one of the most intriguing faculties of human cognition. Still, we know little about how much concepts are formed, how such concepts are formed, processed and represented in mind. Yeah, this is something that I always wondered about. Um, you know, so, so when we think about computers, we can think about memory, we can think about reducing things into numbers and you know, this so on. Uh, but the abstract concepts are quite different, right? Um, so, so what's our best understanding of how the mind forms, processes, and represents abstract concepts, as you say here? Yeah, well, this is indeed a very uh, open question. And um, back in 2017, a few years ago, I was working in Amsterdam at the University of Amsterdam on metaphors. And uh, I organized this big symposium between academics, among academics, about abstract concepts because I didn't know much about it. So I organized this conference and I invited um, top scholars in the field from different, actually from different fields. I invited computer scientists and psychologists and linguists to talk about abstract concepts. And uh, it was a very lively debate. Um, and what emerged very clearly is that 
first of all, people from different disciplines, from different backgrounds, they have different ideas of what abstract concepts are. And in particular, um, it became immediately clear that for cognitive scientists and psychologists and linguists, abstract concepts are those concepts that are not tangible, basically, that cannot be experienced through our senses, like they cannot be seen, touched, heard, smelled, and so forth. So table would be a concrete concept because it denotes, defines a concrete thing that we can see, we can touch, and so forth while uh, theory or belief or emotion or democracy are abstract concepts because they define things that we cannot see or touch and so forth. So this is what cognitive scientists mean with abstract concepts. But then computer scientists, on the other hand, and people working in AI, natural language processing and so forth, they typically refer to abstract concepts as to um, categories that are more generic in a way. So, for instance, they would say uh, things is an abstract concept, while table is a concrete concept, or like uh, furniture is abstract, while, uh, again, rocking chair or stuff like that is concrete. And that's slightly different, you know, and it also, of course, relates to the research questions that people address in cognitive sciences, artificial intelligence and in uh, uh, related fields. So in cognitive sciences, for instance, it's very much important to understand how these intangible concepts, let's call them that way, beliefs, emotions, stuff like that, how are they processed and represented in our mind because there we have basically we have this um, at this point quite established theory that goes under the name of embodiment uh, theories or grounded theories and so forth and the idea is that um, when we read a word we mentally simulate the reference of that word. So, for instance, when we read a word like running or eating and so forth, even though we are not running, we are sitting at our desk, when we just read the word running, we in our brain there are neural areas that activate and those are the neural areas that actually become active when we physically run. And this idea is basically that the, the, the embodied nature of meaning and of language. We mentally simulate meaning and uh, concepts. But of course, what happens when we read abstract words then? It, it's a big open issue. So cognitive sciences, co scientists are interested in understanding that and they focus on that type of abstract concept, namely the intangible things. While yeah. computer scientists are more interested in um, extracting knowledge from data sets, for instance, and therefore getting to the generic level of representations, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah it, it's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense also. So in computer science, as you know, for example, we actually have in, in coding, you know, we have classes and we have abstract classes, you know. Uh, and so it, it is sort of, I can understand where they're coming from. Um, and 
I can see uh, from a cognitive science perspective, um, abstraction is more about things that we cannot see or touch. I was also thinking, uh, Marianne, I don't know if you looked into this. So if you think about astrophysics, for example, mm -hmm. you know, when you think about theory of relativity or quantum mechanics, it's very abstract for most people. Mm -hmm. but, but astrophysicists have mathematics underneath that. And so I don't know where they stop <laughs> about that kind of abstraction when you have mathematics describing things. <clears throat> well, yeah, domains like physics and mathematics are very abstract indeed. And I'd say they are abstract for everybody, also for physicists themselves. It, it, you know, it's intangible things, it's functions, it's relations, it's um, very intangible things. And a, a demonstration of that is that usually um, scientists like physicists and mathematicians and so forth, they need to resort to use metaphors to to successfully explain these abstract concepts. And metaphors are actually very helpful tools that we have to make things more concrete, you know, to make an abstract, difficult concept more concrete, to be able to talk about things that are too abstract otherwise. And so we have concepts, um, um, what can I say? You know, there are, I'd say, many, many, many models even, many um, ways of explaining uh, high scientific uh, concepts employ actually metaphors and um, yeah, concrete images. Let me think of an example. Well, yeah. the clearest example that I have in mind comes from medicine actually, because we are in this situation with the pandemic, for instance, and uh, there to explain how the virus and the vaccinations work and so forth, there is a lot of metaphors going on there. Like the virus attacks the body, the body raises immunitary defenses and so forth. These are all military somehow metaphors. It's military terminology that we use because it's quite concrete. It's quite easier to understand compared to um, the abstract concepts involved in this uh, medical processes. So, so I want to go into you know the cognitive science aspects of this. So, um, you know, especially it's really interesting to think about how the brain represents an abstract concept. So, if I understand you correctly, the brain sort of tries to break it down into components that are more tangible. Uh, so that it can store it more efficiently. And when it needs the concept to emerge, it can assemble, <laughs> so sort of assemble the concept uh, from those components, right? Um, that seems to imply that, you know, I was thinking, is there some sort of a symbolic representation of abstractness? You know, for instance, so uh, if the brain is really trying to break it down into concrete things, that, that means that it's more like a computer and, and less like what we imagined, you know, maybe artificial intelligence might be <laughs> in the future. Uh, but, but do we know, do we have evidence that the brain actually stores it in the fashion that you describe here? Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned yeah this metaphor of the brain as a computer um it's a, it's a metaphor of course and i think it's a very dangerous metaphor because um and it has been uh, highly debated also in the past because um on one hand comparing the brain to a computer um implies that the brain acts um, with, that the brain has separate modules somehow, separate uh, components exa exactly, that uh, can interact with one another, but each of the components has its own function. While, for instance, we know that um, the brain functions in a much more sophisticated way as a whole somehow. And so the embodied account of cognition goes in this direction, suggests that when we read a word, we don't process that specific word in a, uh, in a precise area of our brain, but the activation spreads in different brain areas that are also involved in other types of tasks like perception, action, and so forth. So um, the, the original metaphor of the brain working as a computer that worked or seemed to work in the 70s and in the 80s has been um, put aside for, uh, for a while, let's say. And now, only now, with the new technologies, with the new um, advancements, with the new advances and discoveries, in, uh, in uh, artificial intelligence and computer sciences and so forth with these neural networks and so on. I think that the metaphor is somehow becoming hype again, becoming, you know, um, acceptable again. But of course, then the assumption are different. The assumption is that they maybe, yeah, these new artificial neural networks may somehow resemble the structure of the brain in at least in the way neurons activate and work, but um, yeah, not not much in the way in the brain is structured as with modules and so forth. Yeah, so so I wasn't uh, I wasn't implying that the brain was like a computer, but the the processing and representation of abstract concepts. Uh, mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mariana. So, are you saying that? Um, the abstract concept is sort of broken down into more tangible things. Um, that's the one of the way. That's one of basically. Um, that's one of the theories. That's one of the ways in which the big question mark of abstract concepts has been uh, addressed. Basically, in cognitive sciences, there are different views about how abstract concepts work in mind. One of the views is precisely that abstract concepts, we, we, are, we are able to understand this abstract concept through metaphors. And therefore, we basically, yeah, we, we break them down into more concrete components that we can easily see, touch, and so forth. For instance, we talk about, we may talk about um, ideas as if they were objects, as if it was food. We can chew on an idea, we can spit out an idea and so forth, because ideas are very abstract things otherwise. How, how can we talk and manipulate them, you know? So we break them down and we represent them and we talk about them as if they were concrete things. 
Then there is another view that has been proposed recently that suggests that abstract concepts are represented in mind by means of, um, or at least they evoke much more emotional information, affective information compared to concrete concepts. And so this idea is it has been shown that abstract the processing of abstract concepts activates um, more uh, the amygdala and brain areas that are usually associated with emotions. Um, and that's another view, you know, somebody claims that abstract concepts are represented in mind through emotional components. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, humans have been storytellers. Mm -hmm. And so for all of our history, we took things and then we made stories about them to both memorize and to communicate. Um, yeah, it's sort of interesting, you know, when you think about abstract things, it seems like it takes more energy. You know, it's almost like if you if you did real thinking for a few hours, yes. you are tired. <laughs> and there's a lot of energy being consumed in you know various parts of the brain than you know more regular things, right? Um, and so that also sort of makes sense that there's sort of an emotional charge mm -hmm. that goes with an abstract type processing. Um, so I want to go into another paper that you have from 2018, mm -hmm. how language and image construct uh, synesthetic metaphors in print advertising. Um, research in multi-sensory marketing, you say, suggests that engaging consumer senses is an efficient way to create effective advertisement. In the study, the authors uh, explore how sensory cues are used in print advertising. So, you know, marketers are always looking for <laughs> new ways to get a mind share of the consumer. So, so what are they doing here? This was an interesting uh, collaboration that I developed with a colleague when we were, I was in Oxford for a couple of years working there uh, on metaphors. And I started wondering with this colleague of mine, Francesca Strickleavers, um, how how do we get information about the taste of a chocolate bar or the actual perfume of a perfume, the smell of a perfume? You know, how do we get that information from visual advertisements that we don't get any of that information about the actual taste, about the actual smell, about the actual sound? and so forth, especially when it's printed advertisement like billboards and so forth. And how, you know, wh why do we decide to buy a chocolate bar based on an advert that doesn't make us try the taste of the chocolate, you know? So we started looking around, we started um, looking for adverts, advertisements for products that, you know, are like for which one of the senses is very much important, like perfume, then the smell is very important, or like sweets, like chocolate, the taste is very important, um, or headsets, for headsets, the way, the quality of the sound that they reproduce is probably very important. And how are these advertised visually in print advertisements? And so we realize that usually what um, creative agencies do is, they use what is called synesthesia. So the word synesthesia has a double meaning. One of them is actually a neural condition. It's a, it characterizes people that 
have this special condition for which they see a color and they smell an odor, or they see a number and, and immediately it's associated to a color, something like that. And that's not what we meant. Uh, what we meant with synesthetic metaphors, synesthetic ad advertisements, is this way that creative agencies have to basically advertise something by showing us something related to a different sense. So, for instance, we saw that um, a chocolate bar, to promote, to advertise the, the good taste of a chocolate bar, you might see in an advert that there is a chocolate bar and then there is an orchestra playing or violins playing in the background. And in that way, we somehow associate um, the imagined uh, sound of an orchestra and all the associations that we that the connotations that we have with that like elegant sophisticated and so forth we we map that onto the taste of the chocolate somehow and so we we metaphorically map knowledge from one sense to another sense um to gain information somehow about the product or another example was like um, um, showing a lot of uh, vivid colors um, with uh, the in an advertisement of our headsets. So they would show the headsets and then how do they show that the, the sound, the quality of the sound is uh, good, is vibrant and so forth. They make a lot of colorful waves around it. And so we take information from vision, from colors and shapes and so forth, and we map, we project that onto the quality of the sound that the headsets are supposed to produce. So we cross our senses continuously. And that was very interesting. And we have two ways of doing this, through actually images or through linguistic expressions. We have also a lot of synesthetic linguistic expressions like uh, a chocolate can be, there was a slogan that was like a, um, um, music to your mouth or something like that. So again, it's crossing senses metaphorically. Yeah, I, I remember, Mariana, this was several decades ago. Uh, there were two luxury car brands coming out of Japan, uh, Infinity and Lexus. Uh, and I remember, um, you know, before the products were introduced, both of these companies had a lot of advertisements, a lot of TV-based advertisements, and Infinity never showed the car, but <laughs> just showed, you know, um, uh, images of speed, beauty, power, uh, but never, never the product itself. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and Lexus had exactly the opposite. You know, they had a lot of uh, mechanistic, you know, uh, information on the screen about the product. I don't know which one was more successful, but the, the former example is sort of in this direction, right? It's basically imparting on your mind yeah. what the product is all about. It is not not really the the product's details, but it's all what what it's all about, right? Yes. Yes, and there have been recent. It, it's a bold move. You know, it's a. It's also a very bold move that some companies that are very famous. I don't know whether I can say names of companies or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, 
there are very famous brands that uh, I have seen recently, advertisements in which they don't even show their logo. They don't show their product. They don't show their logo. They only show the colors of their brand. Uh, and, uh, and they show hands, they show elements that remind the viewer of the shape of their product, maybe. Um, but they don't say anything. There is no slogan, there is no logo and no product represented physically. And, and then all of the words that appear in the billboard or in the advert are related to emotions like um, inspire happiness or we are happy together and so forth. And that I think it's a very bold move because it suggests to the viewer we are so famous, you already know us, we don't even need to tell you who we are, first of all. So that's a very bold move. And second, by giving keywords that are positive emotions, of course, then we as consumers, we associate the positive emotions to the brand. And that also, I think, is a, is a successful move. Yeah, as you say, it's a risky move in the sense that there is some cognitive cost involved on yeah. the part of the, the viewer. And so if that cost is too high, then it becomes less successful, I think. So it's a fine line to walk, I would think. It is. Also because I think it depends on the targeted audience. This uh, threshold of uh, cognitive effort that we are willing to put in the interpretation of the advert depends on the viewer, you know. So some products that may be targeted to... Um, nerds, I don't know, <laughs> maybe they are more likely to, you know, they need to put more cognitive efforts to feel rewarded, while other consumers uh, may be more distracted or they pay less attention, so they, they need easy adverts, they, they don't want to put much effort. If they see something that they don't immediately understand, they skip it. So I think it also depends on the targeted audience, uh, it depends on the place where the advert is placed, because of course a billboard has to be immediate because you drive, you know, nearby next to it and it's just a bunch of seconds. While, for instance, I don't know, uh, other contexts like a magazine maybe uh, can afford to have an advert that it's slightly more uh, difficult to interpret, but because maybe the reader has a bit more time to spend on it. I'm thinking about a waiting room at the exactly, yeah. dentist it's, and so forth. Yeah. Because the doctor's uh, waiting room and you're going to be there for an hour. Exactly. <laughs> you have a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. So I'm going to go into another paper uh, from 2019 mm -hmm. uh, on abstraction, decoupling conceptual correctness and categorical specificity. Uh, yeah. You said conceptual correctness and categorical specificity are two continuous variables that allow distinguishing, for example, justice, low corrected, correct, correctness, and banana, high correctness, and furniture, low specificity, and rocking chair, high specificity. So I get the, I get the concepts, um, but, but uh, you're saying they're somehow related, these two, these two ideas? 
they are somehow related. They are correlated. So actually concepts that are more generic, like uh, fruit as opposed to banana or footwear opposed to flip flops, for instance, concepts that are more generic, they tend to be also more abstract somehow. Um, but it, it's a medium range correlation, so it's not always the case. So we also have concepts that are very specific, but abstract, like think about, uh, I don't know, types of religions or types of art, like impressionism or pop art and so forth. These are very specific types of art, you know, and so they are abstract, but they are specific while the very concept of art is quite generic, you know. So we have concepts that are abstract but quite specific. And also we have concepts that are concrete, but they are quite generic, precisely. Like footwear is concrete but quite generic, and uh, flip-flops is concrete but quite specific. So there is a mild correlation between concreteness and specificity, but Actually, we have all the four types of concepts, concrete and specific, concrete and generic, abstract and specific, abstract and generic. And using these words can have different effects on uh, on the people who read texts with these different types of words. So. It's almost like a two, two by two matrix. Yeah. And if you if you look at uh, if you look at, I guess, frequency. So if specificity is on X axis and correctness on the Y axis, Mm -hmm. And you look at uh, frequency of words in these two four in these four blocks. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you have a you have a study here uh, on thirteen thousand nouns. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you went into this, but if you look at frequency of these four blocks, how do they fall? Yes, there are taking into account the, the the words that we have in that the nouns that we have in that sample in that study. There are like the, the typical concrete concepts are also quite specific. So we have many words that are specific and concrete, many words that are um, abstract and generic, and then quite some words that are um, generic and concrete, but just a few words that are abstract and specific. So the frequencies are indeed different for the four types of uh, uh, words and concepts. That's right. So language development, I know that you do a lot of work in this area. So the language is developed. Mm -hmm. um, the objective function, uh, I'm just speculating, I don't know anything about it. The objective function would have been minimizing cognitive cost somehow. And so mm -hmm. if things are very specific and concrete, mm -hmm. I would imagine the cognitive cost is quite low. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so from a communication perspective, those things might be preferred, but then they are limited in its scope, right? If I'm trying to communicate, I have to actually have a lot of very specific and concrete things to, to, to remember to, to have a communication, whereas low specificity and low concreteness gives me a lot of flexibility, even though it takes cognitive cost on the on the side of the listener, right? So there's a, there's a trade-off between these two, I think. Yeah, that's a very interesting intuition, actually. Yes, <laughs> I've never thought in that in those terms, but it makes sense. Yes, 
Yes. So sir. when you look at languages, different languages, you know, so it's a European language is sort of interrelated. Mm -hmm. uh, do we see any differences between languages in these dimensions? Um, I haven't done that yet. <laughs> So we we will see we'll see what what we have done I with a couple of colleagues I didn't send you this paper but with some colleagues we collected um, features and associations let's say to words um, provided in English Italian and Spanish and uh, what we saw for instance uh, we used a paradigm that is called the semantic feature the property generation task. It was a property generation task. So given a word, people would have to list the properties that are, that characterize that concept. Like if I give you the word car, you would say it has four wheels, it has a um, steering, wheel, yeah. steering wheel, It's a, you, it transports people and so forth. Um, and then we collected these type of properties for the same, words in English, in Italian and in Spanish translated in the in the language basically. Um, and we compared them. And for concrete concepts, for concrete concepts alone, we found that people tend to agree on what are the characteristics of the main characteristics of these things. But there are already cultural differences. I, I remember there were words, there are words like um, uh, uh, colander, this thing that you use for the pasta, to drain pasta, for instance. There, Italians, which has which have a high familiarity with this tool because we use it every day, you know, to to cook pasta. We Italians would produce so many properties for this word because it's you know very familiar. You know? While for instance, English speakers, you know, would produce just two or three properties. Um, and also there was a shovel, a word like shovel. Um, all of our American speakers, English speakers, which were American based, they would produce associations with the shoveling snow, which was not produced by Spanish or Italian speakers, because it's, that's not a typical activity that you do with this concrete thing. So even for concrete concepts, which you know are objects, it's the same object in Italy, in Spain, and in the US, the properties that people list uh, for these concepts can differ somehow. And so now we are trying to understand what happens with abstract concepts, and we believe that it, you know, there will be even more variability across languages. Yeah, so one thing I was thinking about, Mariana, the, the concrete mm -hmm. um, ideas, mm -hmm. they have a half-life in, in some sense, right? So I'm thinking about the automobile that you talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, as automobiles get autonomous, you don't have a steering wheel anymore, right? <laughs> and so, so that the concrete things that we sort of keep in our mind become obsolete at some point. Um, whereas the, the more um, abstract things can evolve <laughs> in some sense with uh, with technology, right? Yeah, that yeah yeah, it could be the case. It could actually be the case. Yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so so there there's cultural differences and language differences. Mm -hmm. A lot of the concrete things are related to what we do. 
uh, where we live. Uh, and so that, you know, that makes a lot of intuitive sense that we, we sort of gravitate toward that. It would be quite interesting to think about if somebody had, you know, sort of immigrated from one, <laughs> one place to another, how long does it take for that person to sort of step into a different sort of thinking about things? That would be very interesting. That would be interesting to know. That would be very interesting to know. I don't know how much it would take, but definitely living in a different reality and also learning a different language. You know, there is a lot of research into um, to what extent the original way to conceptualize experience and to see the world, uh, the world stays in your mind from your mother tongue, let's say, and your mother culture, and to what extent uh, one can adapt to the new environment, to the new language, and so forth. And this is also very interesting when it comes to metaphors in a foreign language. You know, um, I am myself, I am an Italian native speaker. So I learned English as a foreign language. And as all people who learn a foreign language, I struggled with learning figurative expressions in English. Because first of all, they differ from English to Italian, like for the same thing, let's say the same concepts, like take um, it rains cats and dogs in English. You know, uh, in Italian, we have a completely different expression. Um, so it's a different linguistic expression to refer to the same concept, like it rains a lot. Um, and then there is, in some cases, there are false friends. So there are expressions that you mentally represent the image. You try to make sense of it from what you know in your own culture, and it doesn't make any sense in the in the foreign language, in, in the new language. So we have in Italian this expression, for instance, it means to find excuses. Yeah, we say to climb up on mirrors. Which <laughs> is an idiomatic expression and uh, it's quite obscure, you know, it's quite, um, of course, as native speakers, we use it all the time and we don't even think about the actual image of somebody climbing up on a mirror, which wouldn't make any sense. But for us, it, we simply think about the actual meaning, which means to find excuses for something like, ah, I cannot come to the cinema today. Yeah, she's climbing up on mirrors, something like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I also remember some time ago, it's a long time ago, um, again, going to the cognitive cost aspect of it. So accents, for example, in my case, you know, I grew up in India. I spent half my life in India and half my life in the U.S. Uh, they say that if you start to change your language after, say, 10 years old, yeah, um, it's really difficult to shake the accent. Uh, and that's because the brain is still processing sort of in the in the original language. And then there's a translation you have to go through. So there is a microsecond delay in that translation process that shows up as uh, as uh, accents. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, um, but I would imagine there's a similar thing going on if you think about abstract idea processing. Mm -hmm. You probably have to first represent that in your original language and then translate that, right? So there is some uh, some, some cognitive cost and timing involved. Yes, in exactly. In, especially in time. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. 
So certainly the scientific disciplines, I guess this will show up in scientific disciplines quite a bit. So if, you, if you're giving a conference, if you're giving a talk, for example, uh, to a, a different you know, language community, uh, it will be quite interesting to see how that person you know, does that. I know, yeah. I know. And I, he, I think as non-native speakers of English, we have a disadvantage compared to um, English native speakers as academics, I mean, because it is true that in a way, non-native speakers are always somehow delayed and it's more difficult to keep up with the train of thoughts and at the same time, translating them into a language that is not our language so we we think slower let's say in a in a foreign language so it should be taken into account yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so, so i want to go to see so you have a couple of papers mm -hmm. uh on covid19 <laughs> which is quite yeah. a quite an interesting and topical um subject so uh 2020 paper framing covid19 how we conceptualize and discuss the pandemic on Twitter. <laughs> you say doctors and nurses in these uh, weeks and months are busy in the trenches. This is early part of COVID-19, I would think, when you wrote this paper. Uh, yeah. Fighting against a new invisible enemy, COVID-19. Cities are locked down and civilians are besieged in their own homes to prevent the spreading of the virus. And so this language changed over time, right? Yes, yes. This was a collaboration with a German colleague, Philipp Wicke, um, that we conducted during the first lockdown here in Europe. So it was around March, April 2020. And um, we started seeing on Twitter a lot of tweets coming up and, you know, with the hashtag COVID, hashtag coronavirus, Corona life and so forth. So we thought, okay, let's see what do people say when they talk about COVID? What do people, you know, uh, discuss on Twitter when they talk about COVID? And so we put together um, a corpus, so a collection of tweets, hundreds of thousands of tweets sampled day by day in the early days of the pandemic, so spring 2020. And then we run some analysis. First, some topic modeling to see what would be the main topics that people were discussing about the pandemic. And we found that people would talk about um, politics related to the pandemic. So there was Trump and, and so forth, because these were English tweets. Um, so there was a lot of talking about Trump. Um, and then there were many tweets about um, family relations. And so like, I can't see my family members, I can see my sisters, I'm so sad, or my father, my mother are in a different city, I haven't seen them for a while now, who knows when I'm going to see them again, and so forth. And then there was a big topic um, about the media coverage uh, of the pandemic and another topic about the actual medical uh, epidemiologist, um, epidemiologic situation. So talking about active cases and so forth. And then we thought, okay, so people talk about these things, what type of language they use to talk about these things. And so we try to understand to what extent people would use military terms, so the war metaphor, let's say, to talk about COVID, precisely like um, a, 
we have to attack this invisible enemy, we have to defend ourselves, uh, the nurses are hiding in the trenches and so forth. So we uh, basically automatically counted how many war-related terms were used in these tweets. And we found that 5%, let's say, of, um, of the corpus was metaphorical, let's say, uh, had uh, military uh, metaphors. And then we thought, okay, um, let's see if people use also different metaphors, not just military metaphors, but different metaphors to talk about COVID. And so we tried to understand whether alternative metaphors, like talking about COVID as if it was a storm, um, or talking about COVID, COVID as if it was a monster and stuff like that. What coverage of the tweets it, it would get, this type of uh, vocabulary, let's say. And it was much, much, much lower. So uh, in the end, we basically showed that of, of the metaphors that people use to talk about COVID, the military, the, the war metaphor is the most conventional and the most popular one. Mm. Yeah, people always like to fight. People like to fight, that's right, that's right. But then, if I may, in the next paper, we also ran um, an analysis through time. So basically we thought, okay, that was the early stages of the pandemic. Let's see what happens later, you know, in the summer of 2020, for instance. Uh, and there we saw an interesting trend. So these military metaphors tended to decline and also within the military vocabulary somehow the words that were used metaphorically to talk about covid changed you know so while we would use words like fight and battle and defense in the beginning then later the words changed we were using words like allied or we would use also other words like riots and so forth, words that are still related with the military domain. And then we started to wonder, wait a second, but it could be the case that these words that we are using now, like riots, barricades and, and so forth, um, they are not used metaphorically, but they are actually used literally. And so we matched um, our analysis with the news, actually, and we found that um, it basically the rise, the peaks in uh, these words like riots, barricades and so forth matched perfectly with the actual riots associated with the Black Lives Matters movement in the United States. So we interpreted this and said, OK, it could be that military metaphors are kind of declining because there are actual battles and riots going on that are literal, they are not metaphorical anymore. And so the metaphor for COVID as a war became less, um, you know, <laughs> less real. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess metaphor metaphors also have um, cognitive cost. So in some sense, if the brain is engaged with the news, the set of words that it is constantly using or hearing yeah. Then it start to use that in all contexts. <laughs> it's a lot less expensive uh, than going looking for something else, right? 
That's right, absolutely. And the war metaphor, for instance, as you said, people like to fight, you know, it's a it's very common. We talk about the war against crime, the war against drugs, the war against cancer, the war against, you know, we have we use the war uh, metaphor to talk in different contexts about different things and different types of war. It's very frequent. Yeah. Yeah, I want to ask you uh, a question that is not in the papers, but it will be very interesting to think about. Um, so, as you know, artificial intelligence is is really uh, developing fast. Um, for us to go into, I don't know a lot about this, but general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, it's called, uh, to make the machines really smart, what is missing is really this idea of understanding abstract uh, and less defined concepts, right? So, so do, do you think do you think there are insights from your research that can go in the direction of you know sort of programming AI machine intelligence in that direction? Do you see some? I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Yes, I agree that for general artificial intelligence, what is missing is uh, the ability to uh, create abstract concepts. One of the things that are missing, the ability to create concepts in the way humans do and to use these concepts in different contexts, you know, to, to fill different tasks, for instance. And um, together with other things that are missing, like common sense, for instance, and so forth. So a lot of things that for humans are very easy, somehow they come very naturally. Uh, they are still, you know, uh, very far, very um, difficult to computationally implement and so forth. But I hope, I really think that starting from actually differentiating what is concreteness from what is specificity, which seems a little thing, but it was a big confusion already in terms of uh, disciplines uh, working on it. Starting from there, I think that um, that can help, let's say, it can help the, the, the communities, the scientific communities to um, try to understand First of all, how we can extract and construct concepts in the artificial mind, concepts that are concrete and that are abstract, and then how can we, maybe through metaphors, so by analogy, constructing abstract concepts on the basis of concrete ones, and then getting at more generic, more higher level, um, so less specific, uh, representations of these concepts. So I, I hope and I think that um, this would contribute somehow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we have 100 billion neurons and they are firing in all sorts of random and stochastic <laughs> fashion. So there's a lot of information. You know, I sometimes think of neurons, you know, sort of they have their own personality because you know, they, they were used in different contexts, you know, the way that they fire over time make may have some personality. So, you know, in some sense, the brain could assemble, um, assemble things, 
from the past. So I'm thinking about common sense here, right? Yeah. The common sense potentially is an assembly process of past information in some fashion. We don't we don't typically do that in computing, right? Um, you know, computers are not really looking for random <laughs> historical information to make a decision. Whereas the brain does, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and also, for instance, when we talk, we leave implicit a lot of information. So uh, we don't talk of a lot of things. So we co when we communicate, we assume, we make a lot of assumptions and uh, presuppositions about what the other person knows already and so forth. So and for a computer, it's still very difficult, I think, to to make these assumptions based on common sense, precisely, uh, based on shared knowledge, exactly, that we we have from past experiences or from the surroundings and so forth. Yeah, I noticed one phenomenon. I want to get your perspective on this. Uh, so, you know, the place I grew up in South India, um, you know, when I was growing up, the language was very rich. Mm -hmm. So when I go back now and I listen to conversations, mm -hmm. I find that I can represent most conversations with less than 100 words. In other words, it looks like the complexity of the language declined substantially. And, and, and this goes back to what you were saying in terms of when there's shared knowledge, you mm -hmm. can almost communicate with, you know, with a couple of words. And if you if you have the context, these words could be the same in many, many contexts. The way that you say it, the way that you end it, all those things uh, actually communicates information. So do you see this sort of a general trend in language that languages are getting simplified in terms of number of words used? Uh -huh. It could be the case. Yes, it could be the case. But yes, and while some people would, you know, I am thinking about... Um, um, yeah, some professors who actually, they're very normative and they say, oh yeah, the Italian language is getting uh, violated by all of these new words from English or the, the younger generations don't use Italian language the way they should and so forth, they simplify it and so forth. But it could be the case that actually Maybe yes, we are using increasingly less words, but because we have an increasingly higher amount of shared knowledge and therefore we don't need that many words because we offload, let's say, onto, um, we trust that our listeners share a large enough amount of knowledge with us so that we don't have to express everything, you know. We can leave a lot of things in the um, implicit somehow. So that could be the case. Yeah, this is this has some implications for again, you know, natural language processing, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, the direction is we we sort of mechanistically assemble um, language. Uh, the problem machines have is that they don't understand context. Uh, and they have to have they have to have lot of words <laughs> to actually understand the language, exactly. and so how the brain does it uh, is is quite an interesting interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. 
exactly. Also, yeah, starting from when we are kids, throughout uh, adulthood and so forth, kids can start to use words and uh, guess and try to understand the meanings of words also when they are exposed to little input, not to the billions and zillions of texts that are required by an artificial neural network to make some meaningful sentence. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, the question is, you know, do machines grow up like humans? <laughs> we don't have an answer for that yet. Uh, so, so I'm going to conclude um, conclude with a, with a sort of a general question. So I don't know the statistics, Mariana, you may know this. So we have 8.4 billion people. My understanding is that half of them talk English at some level. Uh, half, so, you know, three to four billion people. So we are closely edging towards some sort of a universal language. Um, obviously, uh, other countries don't like it. <laughs> Many of the old languages are dying. Uh, yeah. And again, I, I look at India as an example. You know, um, when I listen to people there, they're mostly talking with English words with some fillers of the original language, right? So that trend is going to continue. Uh, do you see some sort of um, societal change? Uh, if we were to get a universal language, let's say all 8 billion people start to talk in English, what will that do mm. uh, from, you know, from a societal perspective? I think and I hope that we will never get to that point, first of all. <laughs> and then second, um, I think that Yes, we might speak some type of English, but I think that there are still differences in the Englishes that we use. So in a way, the variability is preserved. Um, it will be preserved somehow. And I hope that the variability, you know, there are still more than 7,000 languages spoken in the world today. Some of them are endangered, yeah, that's right, but the variability is still very large. So um, when Elon Musk, for instance, a couple of years ago, I think he released an interview in which he said, I think that thanks to my Neuralink technology, human language will become obsolete within five years. I don't think that that's the case. <laughs> we are still very far from there. <laughs> that is true, yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Mariana. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.